young Peter Parker, Spider-Man, begins to navigate his newfound identity as the web-slinging superhero, Spider-Man. Thrilled by his experience with the Avengers, Peter returns home, where he lives with his Aunt May under the watchful eye of his new mentor, Tony Stark. Peter tries to fall back into his normal daily routine, distracted by thoughts of proving himself to be more than just your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. But when the Vulture emerges as a new villain, everything that Peter holds most important will be threatened. the sixth episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, where we cover superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, and more. If it came from a comic and had a theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today we'll be discussing the John Watts movie, Spider-Man Homecoming. And with me today to untangle this wild web of wonder is music extraordinaire and comic book fan, Kelly Pippin. Hey Kelly, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you today, Nick? I'm doing very, very well, thanks, Kelly. And of course, I want to thank you so, so much for taking your time out to uh, co-host this, this episode with me. Not a problem. I'm a huge fan of Spider-Man, and I have been since I was just a little kid, so... Oh, well, and I'm very, in fact, so I guess you're the man for the job. And Kelly, often, you know, what I tend to ask my co-hosts before we you know, actually get into the discussion of the movie is, you know, you were mentioning your love for Spider-Man comics. How did you actually get into comics? So, um, it's funny because I went to church with this gal and she was, she was older than I was. She used to babysit us. And when I was a little kid, about three or four years old, she introduced me to my first Spider-Man comic. Um, and I fell in love with the character, the idea of this young kid struggling and trying to make his own way and trying to figure out who he is. And, um, it just kind of, uh, it evolved from there. And then I started actually drawing Spider-Man and, and doing that kind of thing. And it was just, it was fantastic. Oh, well, so. and, well, and that's definitely a great way to get into comics indeed. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are discussing Spider-Man Homecoming, directed by John Watts, who our listeners might know for Clown and Cop Car. This movie was released in 2017, written by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. It stars Tom Holland, Michael Keaton, John Favreau, Robert Downey Jr., Marissa Tomei, Zendaya, Jacob Batalon, Laura Harrier, and many more. The original score is by Michael Giacchino, who also scored Jurassic World, The Incredibles, Dawn of Planet of the Apes, and other great movies, on estimate, it cost $175 million to make, and it made over $880 million at the box office. So, Kelly, we're definitely looking at a very successful movie indeed. And my thought was, of all the Spider-Man movies out there, why did you pick this one in particular? Um, 
I think because it catches Peter earlier in his life than most of the other films start him out at. Mm. I, I think because we are actually starting in the the quote-unquote, you know, very fresh high school years. I mean, very early, and that's where Peter started, was very early in, in his high school years. And it just, I don't know, this one kind of encapsulates um, the idea of Peter and not just... It's not just an origin story or something like that. It just it kind of roughs out and gives you the whole idea of who Peter is and what he's about. Mm, I, well, it was it's definitely an awesome pick, and, of, and you know, as we saw also from the box office and just the reception it got from fans worldwide, it definitely was an incredible movie for sure. And it was it was interesting, I thought, and I was actually glad, you know, because you mentioned the fact about origin stories. I'm actually glad that this time around. They decided not to give us the origins of Spider-Man because I suppose, you know, we'd already seen it with Tobey Maguire and somewhat with Andrew Garfield. So it was good that they actually started off, you know, with um, Tom Holland as Peter Parker already in the Spider-Man role. Now, speaking of Tom Holland, Kelly, what do you think of him? Would you say he is your definitive Spider-Man compared to Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield? I would, yeah. Um, I was no offense to Tobey Maguire. I was never the biggest fan of his his portrayal of Spider-Man. Um, Tom Gar or, or Gar Mr. Garfield there would have probably Andrew Garfield would have probably went on to do great in that role. But I still don't think he quite grasped the the gravity of the role he was actually playing. So I mean, he came off a little. I don't know. It just it, it felt a little offhand, and I think that. Tom Holland does a fantastic job of capturing that innocence that Spider-Man's always had, I should say. I so, yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with that, so... I will certainly agree, and I think that is what probably makes Tom Holland so endearing to the to the viewers. And then both of us being having the comic book background, I think we really appreciated this particular incarnation. And I thought it was wonderful that you know, even though he has or he's been given this upgraded suit from Tony Stark, he still is kind of figuring himself out. He doesn't really have the superhero role down to a T. Of course, he wants to become an Avenger, and he wants. To do better. Granted, we'd already seen him in Civil War somewhat, but I thought it was great that what we got here was still, a, should, we, should we say it was a um, coming-of-age story almost, because of the fact that um, like I said, you know, we, we see him at first when even he, he's like rescuing cats and helping people, you know, lost people and making bungling mistakes when it comes to stopping criminals at first. And I thought that, that was absolutely wonderful. Um, did you like the, the, the way his character evolved and progressed throughout the movie? Were you satisfied with, uh, should we say, this, should we say, should we say a coming of age story? I, you know, I, I was, I think... Part of it for me, there was just a little bit of disappointment that we didn't get, you know, those actual words from Uncle Ben, mm. you know, that you get in almost every comic. And, you know, that echoes through Spider-Man's story from the beginning of time till now. I mean, even if you pick up a comic book now, you know, those words from Uncle Ben with great power comes great responsibility. You know, that, that kind of echoes through his entire life. And I think it's missing just a little bit of that, but that also makes things a little darker when you start delving into that direction. And I think adding Tony Stark into the mix and making him more of the mentor in 
this particular movie kept leaning to that lighthearted kind of Marvel feel that Marvel always shoots for. Um, and I really enjoyed that. And I think he evolved through the film to understand that um, it wasn't about just saving cats or it wasn't about just helping the old lady or, or you know, all that stuff. I think Peter comes to realize um, the, the uh, magnitude of the task that he is trying to take on in this movie. And I think that helps him evolve. So, well, I, certainly. And uh, it's interesting that in this particular incarnation, we don't have Uncle Ben. And I guess uh, his role is taken over by uh, Tony Stark, i.e. Iron Man, played by Robert Downey Jr. But however, we do get Marisa Tomei as May Parker, a much younger Aunt May compared to what we are used to both in the comics and in other um, versions of Spider-Man, both, should we say, in movies and cartoons and such. What did you think of Marisa Tomei's uh, portrayal of May Parker? I, I thought it was excellent. I'm glad that they finally um, put Aunt May at an age that she actually probably would be. Because hmm. Aunt May has always been in the comics. She's always been the old wise lady, and she's almost like Eternal. I mean, she could be one of the Eternals. Um, <laughs> She doesn't die. Um, she has in several comics and different storylines and different lines, but the, the fact is Aunt May's always been around. Now, don't get me wrong. I've always loved the tottering old Aunt May that's in the comic books. What I um, – this Aunt May, though, to me is just – Aunt May is going to know he's Spider-Man. I always said that in the comics, and for years they Aunt May played oblivious. Um, even though I think she knew. And then finally, you know, Marvel later in the, I think the 2000s finally revealed that Aunt May knew all along or whatever. But in the in the movie, I think her finding out and, and, and all that at this point in time, I think that's just fantastic. And I think that putting her in that role makes a better age um, play for Peter and her because she's not so old that she's out of the loop and she's not so young that she's you know, kind of friends with Peter, she can actually still be a motherly figure and and still play that, okay, I'm still hip kind of situation. Very true. It was a very smart move, I think, on this case of having a younger Aunt May. And of course, Marissa Tomei has has done so much work so far. I mean, of course, from My Cousin Vinny to Untamed Heart to In the Bedroom, The Wrestler. Were you a fan of Marisa Tomei before this movie? Had you seen seen her in other movies before this? Oh, absolutely. My Cousin Vinny. I mean, who, who doesn't remember the line she spouted off while she was sitting on the stand? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, I, you know, you got a boyhood crush on somebody you've seen in a lot of movies and then you see her play Aunt May. Makes me feel a little old. But, uh, <laughs> You know, um, other than that, I mean, I've always seen her in all these different roles. And, you know, you I think I do believe I saw her. I forget which Mel Gibson movie it was. Um, what Women Want, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I remember seeing her in that movie. I remember seeing her in, in, in several different films where I thought this woman just is a talented actress. And you don't see her in a lot of major roles, but. You know, you always get that dose of her in a lot of the movies she plays in, and it's just been fantastic to see her play Aunt May and have this, you know, chance. And I, think, and I also feel that Tom Holland and her had a wonderful chemistry because you really felt that, should we say, hip aunt um, nephew relationship where right. she she loves she loves to, uh, Peter to bits, and she definitely is very concerned about him. But at the same time, being a younger version of Aunt May. Like you said, she can almost maybe keep up with him a little bit more compared to, shall we say, if we'd had 
an older aunt in this case. So I thought that was that was very cool. And plus, in in situations like Civil War, for example, we actually had the situation of Tony Stark actually flirting with her, which was a fun little right. li- little aside there. And. Um, aside from a seasoned actress like Maurice Tomei, we got a lot of debuts on this movie. Among these, Jacob Batalon as Ned, who we know in the comics, Ned Leeds is the hobgoblin in comics, but in this case, he's yeah. a good guy, or we don't know if, this, if he will eventually become the hobgoblin in this particular universe. Also, we get uh, Zendaya as Michelle M.J. Jones, and we'll definitely have to talk about that one. But first off, yes. when, it comes, when it comes to the relationship between Jacob Batalon as Ned Leeds with... Um, Tom Holland, how did what did you think about this their relationship, and did you enjoy seeing Jacob Batalon? I did actually. I I, I was a little surprised because um, I got to be honest, I'm a diehard Spider-Man fan, and a lot of times when they start playing with my universe, you get a little, you know, kind of upset. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, you know, you're kind of like, hey, what are you doing? Stop messing with perfection, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but in this particular situation. Knowing what Marvel's done with, you know, the other movies, Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, and, and how they started the universe, for them to come in and put these two together and then, you know, the chemistry that they've created between them, um, you know, is just, you know, and the chemistry's there between the two actors as well, not just because Marvel stuck them together, but I think these two, honestly, when you watch them together, they care about each other. They're buddies, and it it really plays into... Peter's bleeding heart because Peter truly is one of those people that wants to save everybody. And so, you know, it gives him that extra courage and extra help knowing that his friend is out there and that he could be in danger. So he has to do what he must to, to get things done. And I think that dynamic just plays well into everything. Mm. Do you, but do you, would you like to see this particular um, version of Ned Leeds become the Hobgoblin eventually? Or are you happy him just being Spider-Man's friend or man in the chair, as Ned likes to consider himself? Well, I think I think it would be absolutely fantastic. I mean, and, and here's where my little dark sense of humor comes out, is I would love to see him transform into the Hobgoblin at some point. Mm. Um not because I want to see him and Peter friendship in, but more because when you have feelings in there like that, and you're best buddies with somebody and something tragic happens and you blame Spider-Man for it and you know who he is, that makes you all that more, uh, that makes you all that more menacing as a villain because then you know how to hit him where it hurts. Very true. So, yeah, it, it kind of it could be almost reminiscent of the first Spider-Man we saw in the friendship he had with Harry Osborn when he became the second Green Goblin, and that yeah. could you could maybe have that kind of um, scenario again, which could definitely be interesting. And then uh, uh, we have, of course, Zendaya as M- Michelle M. J. Jones. Now I know that yeah. at first there were a lot of. Um, negative reactions at the end of the movie when she says people call me MJ because of course all, most people know I mean not only the comic book readers but people who have always seen Spider-Man the animated series or, or even the older Spider-Man movies is that MJ is not exactly like this now were you outraged when you found out that this that Zendaya is apparently playing MJ in this particular universe or are you happy with the direction this character is going in 
I'm ecstatic about it, to be honest. She, so we've always pigeonholed MJ just like the comics. Tall, redhead, curvy. You know, she's always been, you know, the girly girl kind of thing and, um, and all that kind of stuff. And having somebody come in and kind of tomboy it up and really play a teenage girl um, versus, you know, the MJ that we're all used to, um, I think really set the bar a little bit higher because she does a fantastic job of playing MJ. She's inquisitive. She's very quirky. She just, she has this whole thing going on. And I think introducing her in that way. And then at the end of the movie, smacking you in the face with MJ, of course I figured it out pretty quick. I mean, you don't, it's not like, you know, she was always watching Peter. So if you paid attention to her, you kind of knew that that was going to pan out to be MJ, but the whole point of that is, is that, you know, Peter's going to go through these relationships and I have a feeling there's going to be more before him and MJ move on. But I, I just, I love the dynamic she's brought to it and, and just that quirky little, I don't know. She just does something different with it that I absolutely fell in love with and I'm not upset about it. I don't think that anybody should be, um, cause there's plenty of spider verses out there. So you know, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great answer because as we know, um, fans can be uh, a very, as I've often said, they can be very vocal about this. And I know they were not particularly happy, but uh, at the end of the day, it, they might also be throwing us a red herring because her name is Michelle Jones and not Mary Jane Watson. So right. for all we know, Mary Jane Watson might actually show up later on. And it could just be, you know, we're throwing this at you. We're kind of messing with you guys. Who knows? I think that's also the beauty of how the MCU is being handled because they can, they constantly surprise us. So this could be, an, it could definitely be an interesting one for sure. And of course, we're introduced to Peter's first love interest, at least in this movie, played by Laura Harrier as Liz Allen, who then we find out is none other than the daughter of his arch nemesis in this movie. Now, when it came to Liz Allen and also in the comics, she is, she is a character, came from the comics, she then plays a character called Firestar. Um, yes. I know that she was mainly, um, she was known for uh, teenage and TV shows prior to this. Did you like the what Liz, what Laura Harrier did, or did you think maybe she wasn't given enough screen time, or that the character wasn't well developed? Did you were you happy with this? Well, okay, so this is where I, I kind of nitpick a little bit, and I kind of, I, I, so I felt like they used Liz Allen to just make the vulture more menacing to Peter. Mm. Um, I. I I don't think they developed the relationship between him and her. I know we were focused on Peter and, and we were learning that, you know, Peter was trying to do this and, and, and I know that, but when you bring a character in like that and to get people to care what happens, cause I didn't feel that awe moment at the end when, when she leaves. Hmm. So, um, I just, it just felt like, okay, this was a, a teenage crush kind of thing, whatever. Um, but in what they try to do is make it more than that in the movie, and they didn't. I don't feel like they quite pulled it off because they didn't really show the dynamic between the two as much as they could have. And I get that Peter was always running off, and, and this was always happening, and that was always happening, and so on and so forth. But I think a little more time of them together and maybe blossoming their relationship a little more might have given it that kick in the gut they were looking for at the end of the movie that we really didn't get. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. 
because it was a bit of a shame that at the end of the movie we find out that that her and her, and uh, her mother Liz Liz and her mother are moving to Oregon apparently because um, their their father Adrian Toomes doesn't want them to be present for the trial. So it's a shame because maybe it was a missed opportunity and we could have seen more of Liz Allen and possibly uh, Peter in other movies. So I kind of agree with you to a certain extent about the fact of we didn't maybe get enough screen time. I mean, aside from obviously seeing there is some chemistry and there is some attraction, but at the same time, I suppose they could have maybe focused on that just a little bit. But other than that, I mean, I was... Well, yeah. It's teenage puppy love. I think that's what they were shooting for, and I feel like that's what they got out of it. Um, but here's the other thing that I'll kind of throw out there for you to think about. I don't think she's done in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh. Um, because they introduced her, I think that's a tease for something coming in the future. Now, I may be wrong, but I think that something is going to change in the future and I think we'll see her again. Ah, so, so, you, so you think we might actually get her as Firestar? I think so. Mm. I think that was a setup for us. Um, I Marvel doesn't do anything without thinking it through. Um, and if people haven't learned that by now, since we're into the, what, the third or fourth phase, um, if people haven't learned by now that Marvel is always thinking 50 steps ahead... I mean, look at any of the Avengers movies that you've seen and all the tie-ins that they did way back in Thor, the very first one, or Captain America, or um, the first Iron Man. I mean, from that point forward, if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss all the little ambiances that they throw into these movies that allow you to kind of take that walk with them. And then when you see the movie, you're like, oh, that's right. I knew this. And I think that's what they're doing with this. I don't think it was unintentional that the relationship was slight and it was there but i think that they're going to pursue something with her in the future here well that's a very interesting take i like that theory and it would be i think a bit a great surprise and an interesting situation if liz allen did resurface as firestar and one of the characters that i absolutely adored we get a little bit of an idea of his quirkiness here and we get it even more in far from home but we're not going to dwell on far from home but it is martin Starr as mr harrington now (laughs) this man made me (laughs) chuckle and laugh every time he was on screen we know of course that martin Starr is an accomplished comedian he's been in things like party down Silicon Valley, Knocked Up, Adventureland, and I've always loved his work. When it came to you, were you a fan of Martin Starr's before this, and what did you think of Mr. Harrington? Well, he was the the comic relief in the movie. I mean, I've seen him in other stuff, and I've paid attention, Um, (laughs) and and yeah, and it just, I don't know, I think he, everything that, you know, every time he popped on the screen... Things like that happen. It's always this oddball situation. So, um, and it just, it really kind of lightened the mood a lot of times when you were getting into that dark space and then bam, it hits you with it and just pull you out with the comic relief and, and kind of roll you around. And I think that played well into it. So I don't think it took anything away. It definitely added something to it. So. And and I think we definitely needed a character like this. Already the movie in itself is definitely a fun movie. It's very lighthearted. And a character like 
Mr. Harrington is is definitely what is needed, I think, in a movie like this. He definitely fits in perfectly. And it made me want to see more of him because sometimes you can get those comedic characters. You're like, okay, we get it. The guy's a total loser. He's a bit of a, you know, a sad, right. you know, he's a bit of a, you know, it's, he's, he's not, he has a lot of baggage and he has a lot of problems. Right. And apparently he's not the best teacher to take students on field trips with because apparently from what we've heard he's lost students before <laughs> and so right. well, and, and they didn't make it over the top like a lot of times when they bring in comic relief it's it goes too far and it's so corny it doesn't work this just works into it and and he's his own worst enemy in the movie and it, it cracks me up because he just says things that throw him himself under the bus <laughs> so it's just kind of like you know you get your laugh and your chuckle out of it and you can just keep going with it, you know? Indeed. And it wouldn't be a high school movie without, shall we say, the class bully or the class jock, who in this case uh -huh. is, exactly, is played by Tony Revolori, Flash Thompson, who also in the comics is Agent Venom. Um, he, he was actually in the, I actually really enjoyed Tony Revolori in the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is a very particular well, movie. It's an odd movie, but Tony it's did... Very Exactly, it's an excellent movie. Tony didn't, did a wonderful job as Flash Thompson. Granted, a different Flash Thompson once again to the one we're used to because, uh, you know, those who haven't read the comics but have maybe seen the Tobey Maguire movies know that Flash is the high school jock, plays, you know, football, he's a buffed guy, he's big, etc. And he bullies Peter both in the comics and in the early, in the Sam Raimi movies. But here, they portrayed him as the rich kid who still obviously takes pot shots at, at Peter. Is uh, Any moment he can he finds, he'll, he'll tease him and jeer with him and all this kind of thing. Um, what did you think of this version of Flash Thompson? So I think what Marvel tried to do with this version of Flash Thompson is make him more relevant to the, to the times. Because bullies aren't the same as they used to be. Mm. Um, don't get me wrong. There's still bullies at school and things like that. But a lot of your bullying happens via internet or things like that. And and so now, you know, where it used to be, jocks were cool and nerds were geeks and geeks were just kind of the out crowd. Now it's almost reversed in society where jocks are still cool, but the nerd and geek class of people are like – Way cool. So you know, so I think Marvel played on that a little bit and brought this Flash into the into this time period and said, okay, we need a, we still need a bully. Peter has to have you know somebody to antagonize him constantly. So I think bringing in this type of a Flash plays into the kind of society that we live in today. Is our Flash Thompson may not be the big dumb jock. He may be the smart guy on the other end of the computer. So. You know, I think that really works well in today's society. And I think kids today relate more to that than they do the old school like we like I related to, you know, from back when Flash was a jock and just a big bully. So <laughs> Oh yes, and uh, and and it works so well once again this universe. This particular version or interpretation of Spider-Man universe they've created really works for this particular Flash Thompson. I and you know, you were mentioning earlier about uh, the possibility of Liz Allen returning. I wonder 
whether whether we might get a grown Flash Thompson. I don't know if it might be his agent Venom, because of course we have Tom Hardy playing a great Venom at the moment. But um, it's, uh, it, it makes me wonder, do you, would you like to see more of Tony Revolori as things progress? Well, yeah, because so in the comic books, Flash was an integral part of Peter's growing up throughout high school. Yeah, It wasn't just... You know, they became, in the comic books, and I'm not going to spoil anything by telling you guys this, because if you're any kind of a comic book fan, you know it. Flash Thompson and Peter become very fast friends later on in the comics. Now, it isn't until after college, and it isn't until Peter's published his book of photos on Spider-Man, and he's already married Mary Jane and things like that. Um, and it isn't until after that that, you know, Flash becomes the agent, Agent Venom. But the, the point of that is, is that, Flash Thompson's always been around, and he's not always been the bad guy. And I think people tend to forget that. And I think that this, the way that they're setting this up is so that, you know, at some point, Flash will admire Peter's intelligence and, and vice versa, and these guys will become friends. But as of right now, I think we're going to see more of him. And I hope that at some point, you know, that we, you know, we, we, we progress forward. And as they get out of high school, we'll see more of you know that kind of relationship so we'll see what happens though we'll see what marvel does with it it could be a, a wonderful um situation where we think you know for now we're kind of cheering peter and the, the ned relationship as friends and we kind of revile tony a little bit wouldn't it be insane if then ned did become the hobgoblin and became evil and became peter's nemesis and tony became his friend that would be an interesting twist i think and now you're thinking exactly like the comic book writers and movie makers are <laughs> that you know that's that's the ultimate twist is it not i mean it's the ultimate betrayal it's the ultimate you know thing um I just have this this feeling that later on in life, something's going to happen with, with Ned, and Peter's not going to be able to save him. And I think Ned's going to come back, and we're going to have our hobgoblin. But we'll we'll see. Mm. I, I just yeah, I think that's why they're still pushing this relationship with him and Ned right now because I think something tragic's going to happen, and people are gonna, not going to like it. We're going <laughs> to flip out about it. Oh they yeah. Are gonna have <laughs> it's it's going to be interesting when when things when things uh, progress for sure and of course we have some great i wouldn't call them i guess you could say supporting roles but they they definitely have a great uh, role in this movie among these of course is the incredible john favreau as happy hogan who i've enjoyed Absolutely. in all the iron man movies and of course whenever he makes an appearance on screen did you like the relationship that happy had with peter you know, I, I did at the end. Um, I felt like, you know, Happy has a lot of responsibilities, being Tony Stark's right hand and stuff. I get it. Um, but you've got a teenage kid with superpowers and you blow him off. Um, so I was a little disappointed and Happy at the first part of this movie um, because he never took Peter seriously. Um, you know, and and that was the whole point of that. And I think, I think... Tony's talk with Peter, um, you know, there in the middle of the movie, I think that was a repercussion of Happy just going, hey, the kid is like telling me this. Can you check in? You know, and so Tony checks into it. And instead of appearing, Tony sends the FBI, which was a huge mistake. And I think that at that point, I think Peter's 
feelings about himself and happy and all this other stuff. I think he's just down in the dumps. And I don't think happy helps with that, but I think it helps Peter grow in the movie. I think the fact that happy is kind of nonchalant about that relationship and just like, oh my gosh, I got to babysit this kid. Um, I think that turns at the end of the movie, though, and Happy understands that this is a kid that is struggling with adolescence, puberty, and he's a superhero. I mean, that, those things just, I mean, come on. If, if you were an adolescent and went through puberty and you were a boy, that was tough enough. Now add on the fact that, you know, you can throw cars around New York, yeah, you know, maybe Happy should have played a little more attention there, but <laughs> just my opinion. <laughs> And I, I, it so made me laugh that, and it's 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 so sweet to a certain extent that how much Peter wants to impress both Tony Stark and Happy, and how and the number of messages and texts that he sends Happy because he's waiting for that call which never comes, and uh, he right. he's like you know remember me I just left school I'm doing this I'm doing that in hopes of an answer that's a, b- a brilliant right. scene. And also when he's making his his home video and you know he's he's going all over the world and traveling for the first time on a private jet and and it's 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 fun to see John Favreau kind of babysit Tom Holland in this case and you you mentioned. Um, uh, Tony Stark, of course, who Robert Downey Jr. makes a, a big, big appearance in this movie. How did you? What did you think of the relationship between Tony and Peter? Do you think it? Uh, did you like it? I, I, I did. I think that um, I think Marvel's playing that card kind of hard right now. I think that um, um, that in in that particular situation, that uh, instead of having Uncle Ben as Peter's um, mentor and that Peter finds his own way after Uncle Ben dies, I think having Iron Man, Tony Stark, step into that role and say, hey, kid, here, I, you know, I'm here to help you. And the tough love moment, you know, that uh, him and Tony have there in the Bay at New York, you know, I think that that's a huge indicator of how much influence that Tony had. Um, but I also think that by Tony, you know, coming in and stepping in and taking that father, fatherly kind of role that it, you know, it pushed Peter to try harder mm. to an extent because here you have one of the richest men in the world. He's Iron Man and he's your friend and your mentor and you're just trying to impress him and you, you know, you get that. But I think they did a good thing by taking away all the super stuff that, that Tony gave Peter and let Peter be Peter and be Spider-Man um, because at the end of that, we all know that Peter exceeds any expectations we had of him even without Tony's special stuff. Because we grew up in the comics with a hand-sewn suit that Spider-Man wore around and he built his own gadgets. So, you know, for Tony to just hand him something like that, I was glad they kind of took it away and let Peter blossom on his own and then, ta-da, we step back into it. So I think... I think it's a huge relationship crutch that um, that we're going to see um, that Peter's going to lean on a lot. So we'll see how that goes. So when it actually came to that famous pep talk, or shall we say, well, not even pep talk, it was you know a reprimand after that disaster. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, after that reprimand, after you know that what happened, you know, with with the ferry and it coming apart and everything else. Um, so you, do, do you feel that when Tony was was yelling at him and telling him, "I'm taking away the suit because you know, if without if without the suit, you don't you aren't able to do anything. You don't deserve it, or you shouldn't wear it." Do you think that he felt that Peter would find it in himself to be worthy of it, or do you think he was just Totally like this kid has disappointed me completely. I'm not going to give him the time of day. I, I don't think it was disappointment. I think it was, I honestly feel like that Tony knew there was more to Peter than Peter did. And I think that by taking the suit and Tony telling him, if you're nothing with this suit, then you are nothing. You know, if you aren't anything with this suit, then, you know, what are you? You know, you, you can't be Spider-Man if you're not Spider-Man. Hmm. So... You know, I think him taking away that crutch and telling Peter, hey, you know, you know, this this may not be your thing. You know, it kind of spurred. It's like somebody telling you you can't when you know you can do it and it makes you mad and you just go in and do it anyway. Right. So I think I think that pushed Peter to the brink of not only feeling disappointed that he let down Tony, but I think it pushed him emotionally further and matured him a little bit to the point that. He realized I am Spider-Man. I think, you know, when he's laying in the rubble there in the building and he's like, I'm Spider-Man. I think that realization comes to his mind. And I think that's what makes him, that just pushes him. I think that makes, I I think it makes Peter, I think it makes Spider-Man in that movie. Definitely. And we get that wonderful scene where he is buried under the rubble and he lifts up the, the rubble of himself, which is, of course, a great homage to the comics. There's a wonderful illustration where Spider-Man is actually in a situation similar to that, where he's almost like drowning, as it were. And he suddenly sort of lifts up this huge weight and, you know, and, and off he speeds to, to uh, do other heroic deeds. And I love that. Absolutely. And I loved also the um, relationship they have. And I'm also wondering whether Marvel are grooming Tom Holland to be the next Iron Man, as in the huge role that Iron Man had throughout the MCU. Do you think that they, their idea is to maybe make a spider-centric Marvel universe, seeing what has happened in future movies? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the devil's advocate here, mm. and I'm going to say they're misleading you. Ah, I, I really am. I think that that Peter may <laughs> fill a gap for Tony, but I don't think that Peter is going Tom Holland's character, that Spider-Man. I don't think that they're going to push him into that. Maybe, maybe, but I, I just I don't see it. A lot of people talk about that, and there's <clears throat> you know there's other things that have happened since this movie, obviously, but but I think that Marvel is leading us down a false fork in, in the plot. I really do. That's, that's kind of where I'm at with that. I, and I'm, I'm not going to say why, because it would be pulling stuff from the future of this into right. that situation. But I just, I don't feel like, because Peter Parker has a long ways to go. I mean, if you really sit down and think about this, he's a freshman in high school right now. So, you know, moving him forward through time if we're following the timeline that we're currently on right now, it's going to be years before he's capable of taking that role on anyway. Right. So I'm, I don't know. We'll see. I, I just, I don't think that that's the case. I think he's going to play an integral part in the person that takes that role, but I don't think it's going to be him. 
I, I just don't see that. Well, we, I, I think, you know, after what you have said and just everything that we have seen, I, I think there's a general just curiosity to see what will happen after everything that has ensued. And we, of course, talked about the, the, the good guys here. Let's move on to the dark side of the spectrum here, where we have, once again, tons of teasers thrown to the comic book fans especially, and maybe also some of the fans of the animated series as well. Because you mean like half of the Sinister Six in the movie? There you go, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that I, they, they were throwing some serious teasers at us on, in this movie because, of course, we have, like you mentioned, members of the Sinister Six from, of course, two shockers, uh, Herman Schultz, played by Bokeem Woodbine, and uh, Jackson Bryce, played by Logan Marshall Green. Uh, both of them, of right. course, do play the role of the shocker or take on the mantle of the shocker in the comics. Then, of course, we have Michael Chernus as Phineas Mason, who is the tinkerer. And also yep. we have Michael Mando as Matt Gargan, the scorpion. And, uh, and of course, Michael Keaton as Adrian Toomes, the vulture. But let's get first to, shall we say, the cronies. So when it came to the two shockers, for example, were you happy to see them on screen? Or do you feel they were just kind of throwaways just to make us fans happy? I, I think the first shocker was the throwaway, which kind of kind of bothered me a little bit because he played an integral part of the comics in, in the beginning. He was a shocker for a very long time. Um, but I do understand that that version of the Shocker, even in the comics, was offhanded and cocky and arrogant and nine times out of ten stupid. Um, and they used him in the comics kind of as cannon fodder most of the time. Yeah. Um, he wasn't this hugely um, – he wasn't a huge supervillain in the comics. And I think what they did was they kind of gave a nod to, okay, this guy was a Shocker. Then we get the second Shocker like very shortly into the movie – which turned out to be in the comics more of a more of a, a, a nemesis to Peter than a lot of his other foes. Um, some of these smaller villains that we've saw in the comics played larger roles in a lot of series in the comics, and I think putting them into this movie um, kind of gave us that feel like it, everything's connected. You know, you've got your villainous underground. DC has done a wonderful job over the years of connecting villains, and I think Marvel has finally got on that. Okay. We want to be, you know, the Batman-esque because you got the Penguin and the Joker and the Riddler and all these people know who they are. And, and you know, you're fighting one individual person. And so I think that in the vein of that, <laughs> I think Marvel's cinematic universe is now trying to connect some of those dots and make people realize that these villains don't just sit in a secret lair all by themselves rubbing their hands together like you'd like to think. They are an integral part of the story. And I think that they meet other villains that are an integral part of the story and they become, you know, that becomes, gives you that um, linear feel to how things progress. Mm. And and when it came to to the, the the brief, well, no, the Tinkerer had a rather had a rather bigger role. Michael Chernus as Phineas Mason, the Tinkerer. What did you think of the relationship that he had with uh, with with uh, Adrian Toomes, with Michael Keaton's version of the Vulture? Well, so I think, I you know, I think Michael Keaton's version of the Vulture played a lot into how they did that, mm. and the aspect that. This version of the Vulture was thinking about his family. Mm. Um, and the relationship that he had with the Tinker was kind of tumultuous because 
the tinkerer wanted to take on these high risk things. He was like, I don't think that's a good idea. And then finally he's pushed to that point that he gives into the tinkerer and he says, okay, let's do this. And the tinkerer was correct. Had Spider-Man not been there, had, you know, Peter not intervened, then I, then the tinkerer would have pulled this off. But I think that whole relationship there was based on Toombs being the boss. I mean, he was the boss. I mean, if you paid attention to everything that happened, this, you know, the vulture ordered everyone around. And I think the tinkerer is in the comics. Anyway, he plays a much larger role in some of these things, but here in this movie, I think his role was more as that minion and not so much as, you know, this full blossomed villain that he can be. Mm. So just, yeah, I think that's where I'm at with that. Right. And yeah, cause of course the tinkerer in the comics, has a huge role. One, he tends to, in many situations, supply other villains with weapons and such, kind of like, like I suppose he does with, uh, with Adrian Toomes' version of the Vulture. And the fact that he, the guy so, so wanted to implement these instruments and these, these alien, this alien tech that he had found, and Adrian Toomes kept shutting him down, saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're doing this. And the guy was like, and eventually, of course, it was kind of like Chekhov's gun. We knew eventually we would get to the point where he would use that particular technology. And we also get a brief moment of seeing Matt Gargan, the Scorpion, who is a huge Spider-Man villain. Did yes. you did you want to see more of Matt Gargan or were you happy with, shall we say, the focus being on the Vulture and already having all these various henchmen? So... I was happy with the way they played him into the movie because one, Adrian Toomes pays up on his debt to Peter in that scene. And secondly, having him come in at that point in time and talk, because you, I, I do believe you see him a little earlier in the movie. Yeah, because there's a big close up on the, on the tattoo on his neck on the ship. Right. And he gets arrested. So I think... You know, when you're when we get to the end there and we're talking about this and he makes that appearance because I knew he was coming back. I didn't think he would be back in this movie, but I knew he was coming back. And then to see him at the end there, I really think that the vendetta against Spider-Man is brewing. And the longer he sits there, the worse it's going to get. And I think when he comes out of there, I think he's going to go to the Tinkerer for the Scorpion suit. I don't know. I could be wrong. But I think the Tinkerer is going to play an integral part of developing um, some of these villains like the Scorpion. Yeah, um, yeah. I feel like the Tinkerer is the cue from 007 for the villains. That's, that's what I feel like they're going to use the Tinkerer as. He's going to be the one-stop alien shop of doom, and they're <laughs> going to use him to, to facilitate a lot of these other characters coming onto the scene. Which I am certainly hoping because everybody is really waiting for the Sinister Six to show up. So we're definitely, everybody's crossing fingers it will happen. Now, you know, we kept kind of hinting at it. And uh, I think now is the time to address it. Let's talk about the big bad in this movie. Or, I mean, or should we say, not exactly bad, because I guess we have to maybe sort of go a little bit more into it. Michael Keaton as Adrian Toomes, the Vulture. Now, they decided in this case, obviously, to not go the classic route that the other movies had gone in, which was Green Goblin. Were you happy right. that they went with the Vulture, or would you, have, would you have liked to have seen another version of the Green Goblin? 
No, I, I'm, I'm happy they went with the Vulture this time, and here's why. Mm. So if you read some of the first beginning comics, there are some standard villains that Spider-Man always faces in the beginning. And if you can go all the way back to his origin and, and, and fantastic, you know, the fantastic stories and all that stuff. Um, if you look, there are several villains that were, that were primed to that. The Green Goblin, the Vulture, Kraven, um, uh, the Lariat, Sandman. Um, I'm trying to think of a few. There's a few others there. These were staple villains for Spider-Man. Um, Adrian Toomes, um, him being left out of earlier versions of this stuff kind of aggravated me a little bit. And maybe they didn't really know how to bring him to the screen. I think they did a fantastic job this time. But the Vulture was always an integral part of Spider-Man's lore because the Vulture was always doing things to antagonize Spider-Man. And, and he was... The Vulture wasn't the villain that the Green Goblin was. The Vulture was never out, ever really out to kill Spider-Man in the comics so much as he was just to get around him. He, he wanted to rob his banks and, and he wanted to do his mischief and just be left alone and Spider-Man wouldn't let him do that. And so that rivalry became more fluid. And Tombs never, you know, in the comics it was never, I'm going, you know, there's times he says in the comics, I'm going to kill you. But the relationship between them was always that the, the vulture was this not a super super villain he was a super villain but he, he he was more after monetary gain and and things like that he wasn't trying to kill peter or trying to harm somebody that peter cared about or you know like some of these other villains like the hobgoblin and the green goblin they always were trying to kill spider-man and i think that bringing tombs in like this and treating it the way they did and giving you that you know, you get that feeling of you're kind of rooting for the vulture because he's, he's trying to protect his family. And Tony Stark just kind of took his his money making away. So for him to turn in and turn this, you know, it kind of it's almost like, OK, well, you, we create our own worst enemies. And I think Tony created that enemy for for Peter. So <coughs> that's. Yes. I don't know. Maybe I put too much into that, but that's kind of where, you know, it's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> Not at all, because it was wonderful to actually have such a complex character. I'm actually glad that this version of the Vulture was not the one from the comics as in the old man who's always looking for you know the fountain of youth as it were always trying to you know look for something to make him younger and he's not sort of a guy that just flies around it's actually a man with you know tech that allows him to fly and and we should, let's say that Michael Keaton has often played creatures with wings from being Batman to Birdman to all sorts of other things. It was almost inevitable, I guess, that he would play another character with the, with the power of flight. And what I thought was amazing is how well he plays evil, because, it, you know, we've seen him in many situations as the hero. Of course, we have seen him as a bit of a crazy guy in Beetlejuice. And I think he brought a little bit of the Beetlejuice-ness into the vulture in yep. in some of the ways in his you know, that kind of leering grin and i thought it right. was i don't know if about you but i thought there was almost a homage to the green goblin when they're in the car and he's driving liz and peter to the to the the prom dance and there's the green light which goes off on his face and he's grinning it might have been 
a homage to the Green Goblin or maybe even the, the Sam Raimi version where, of course, we have um, the Green Goblin who's totally out of his mind. I don't know. It was, it was something that made me think of that. And I thought that you could tell that he's, he is working for his family, but there is something that is just a little bit off kilter and the guy could be borderline sure. psychotic. So, so to touch on the, the to touch on the, a lot of people don't remember that that Michael Keaton played a very bad person in a movie one time, and I cannot, I want to call the movie Pacific Heights or something. I can't remember the name of the movie now for some reason. It's based on a book, but he plays a downstairs neighbor and is a really bad copper or something to that effect, and he's evil in that, and he plays it really really well. Mm. Um, and so. I mean, he's not just evil. I mean, he's, 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 yeah, it's crazy. He's a psychopath. <laughs> yeah, he's a psychopath. Um, yeah. And so a lot of people forget that Michael Keaton, um, you know, he started out, you know, you had Night Shift, you had, you know, he was, he, he was a pretty comedic actor. And a lot of people, believe it or not, back in 1989, when they found, people found out he was going to be Batman, DC and, and, uh, and, and Warner Brothers got, hundreds of thousands of handwritten letters we didn't have email back then they wrote letters just screaming not to do this and he is today still one of my favorite batman but fast forward now to, to this we've got an older michael keaton that plays the role of the vulture with just this you know it reminds me of how jack nicholson played the joker and william defoe played you know the the, the Green Goblin and the Sam Raimi movies, there's that off piece, that just broken piece in there that you know's in there, you know, mm. um, <clears throat> that you know is just, it's going to come out at some point. And, and you know, I just, I, I feel like I'm glad that they didn't rehash the Green Goblin. I'm so glad that they gave the Vulture a chance to become an actual physical. And he's not done. I mean, he's in jail. He's not done. We may see him again here pretty soon. Um, you know, so I just I feel like that casting Michael Keaton and getting that that Beetlejuice, like you said, that whole just broken kind of that that psychologically off kilter kind of way that he handles things. Just yeah, it's it's exciting. I think so. That, I'm yeah. kind of. Looking forward to seeing more of that. I think the movie you might be referring to might have been Penthouse North. Could it be that one? Yes. Okay, there we go. So I think it was Penthouse North, because I've heard a lot about that movie. I've never seen it, but I'll definitely have to check that one out for sure. And uh, and and uh, any, any other further thoughts, uh, Kelly, on this movie before we move forward? No, I, I, I just feel like Tom Holland... Um, I think the characters that they picked for this particular Spider-Man movie and the people they picked and chose to, to bring, you know, obviously we've already established that, you know, Tony Stark was, you know, going to be in this movie. We've, we've got established people, but to bring in Aunt May and to bring in, you know, Happy with more of a role in this movie and, and to bring in all of Peter's friends and things like that and kind of introduce us to his world, I think that's huge. So... Really kind of excited about that. And I hope that they they really push this, you know, and, and bring it, you know, bring it to fruition. 
I'm definitely hoping so too. And at this point, you know, bearing also in mind what we know in the future, when it comes to, shall we say, this movie and looking at some of these characters, what would you like to see personally done with these characters in the the, the next Marvel phase? I, I mean, in this next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's going to be a lot of shakeup, I feel like, because... Obviously, you know, and I'm not spoiling anything for anybody. Captain America's gone right now. Um, you know, there's some other things that have happened that shook up the whole universe. Um, and so I really feel like that that the crux of the Marvel Universe is going to spin on Spider-Man for a bit. And I feel like that the characters that they're developing now will become an even greater influence on everything else that's moving forward. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's just, it's hard to imagine they're going to move in. We've introduced new characters now, like Captain Marvel and, and a lot of other folks. Um, and there's been hints at others, um, throughout different movies. So we're really going to see this whole universe turn and who knows? I mean, we're going to see what happens. Exactly. And I'm sure it's going to be a wild ride indeed. Me personally, the only thing I can say is I definitely want to see the Sinister Six. And I also... I, I know he's been done before and it, a lot of people loved the version he was in. I would actually like to see a new take on Doc Ock, to be honest. I would love to see a new take on Doc Ock. I, I think um, would, yeah. Now, one person I wish they would bring back and give another shot to, um, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to remember his name now because it just escapes me. He played the Sandman in Raimi's movies. Right. Um, I can't remember the actor's name now to save my life. Oh, I just had it. I totally lost that. <laughs> he made the most believable Sandman I think I've ever... Well, I mean, he's the only one that's ever been on screen, I think. Yeah. But that was like the perfect pick. Um, it just was so believable. That was Thomas Hayden Church. Yes. There we go. So you'd like to see Thomas Hayden Church come back? I'd like to see him come back as a Sandman again, yeah. Hmm. I, I, that would definitely be an interesting interesting one for sure. Well, I guess, you know, all we can do is wait and see. And when it comes, you know, to the comics, because, you know, you have, I, I, you know, as the listeners could tell, you're a big fan of the comics and you've, you're very widely read in the Spider-Man comic universe. Are there any particular storylines or writers that you would like to suggest to the listeners if they want to find out more or delve more into the Spider-Man lore comic book-wise? I think one of the – if you're going to delve into the universe and you're really into the Marvel universe, I think um, some of the comics that you should track down as, as far as Spider-Man goes, um, one would be um, the entire clone, the Spider-Man clone series. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge one. And then the other one is where Spider-Man is dealing with Thanos. Um, and Thanos has the Infinity Gauntlet because a lot of people don't realize that Thanos – um, was in love with Lady Death and if Spider-Man dies in the comics um, and Thanos uh, brings him back um, because it wasn't his time and he wanted to please Lady Death and so there's an entire series there where Spider-Man is dealing with Thanos and there's all these different things that are going on and because of Thanos Spider-Man loses his life and Lady Death is upset so Thanos gives Peter back his life and etc etc so um there's a lot of those in there. I think the Secret War, if you're a huge Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, 
I think the Secret War, because Spider-Man plays a huge part in the Secret War series. Um, you know, the Civil War series, obviously, because Spider-Man's a huge person in that. Um, there's just a lot of different ones. And I think, you know, the biggest ones would be, you know, when he first marries MJ. I mean, I can't remember the name of the series, but, you know, <laughs> there's just... There's ones you can nitpick out of there that would give you better insight into where Marvel's going with things. So, Well, I will certainly endorse those, especially the Clone Saga uh, people. I believe that now on uh, digital-wise, you can actually find it as a trade paperback, which it, and it collects the entire Clone Saga because, as Kelly was rightfully saying, it definitely is... It, it spanned many, many issues of Spider-Man. And I believe that now, luckily, you can actually find it as a trade paperback. When it comes to me, I would suggest the story Craven's Last Hunt, which is one of my, oh. one of my all-time oh. favorites. Ah, you're a fan of that one, too? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Craven the Hunter, period. <laughs> um, a lot of people go, how can you be a fan of this villain? And I'm like, you don't understand. Um, he's not doing it out of spite or anything like that. This is the ultimate, like kind of hunt thing for him so <clears throat> and keep in mind craven would have never went after spider-man had it not been for J. Jonah jameson and a lot of people don't understand that mr jameson happens to probably be one of spider-man's biggest villains ever to grace the pages so yeah yes indeed so so you know my people you had a double endorsement there be sure to check out craven's last hunt it's written by jm dematteis you can once again find that also uh, as a trade paperback because once again it went it spanned throughout various n issues of, of the spider-man comics so that's one and my second one was Todd McFarlane's initial run on Spider-Man in 1990, which went from issue one to issue 14. Just pure, not just for the storytelling, but also the artwork is incredible. And I feel that Todd McFarlane really brought Spider-Man into a new era, artistically speaking. Just the webs and the way he drew the, the, the webs shooting out of Spider-Man's hands was just incredible. So definitely check out Todd McFarlane's run on Spider-Man. That's issues 1 to 14 from 1990. And speaking of the, web, of, of the webs, uh, Kelly, were you happy that the fact that, um, that, he was, that Peter was shooting, that had web shooters, or would you have preferred him to actually be able to auto-generate the webs? No, I'm happy he had web shooters, and here's why. Right. Peter is a brilliant young man that didn't get the credit in the Raimi movies that he should have gotten because he developed a lot of the tech that he used as Spider-Man in the comics all by himself. There wasn't anybody helping. You know, it wasn't his dad's research. It wasn't any of that. This was something that Peter worked out on his own, in his bedroom, up late at night, tinkering around. And if, if you remember, the, the old web shooters from the comics were very big and bulky looking. Um, and he did a good job hiding them, but I was just happy that this is something that Peter developed and, and that, that it belongs to Peter, you know? So certainly, certainly yeah. was uh, not a fan of the Sam Raimi thing. I don't know if I got that across. Didn't like it. Still don't <laughs> like it. Just late. <laughs> well, you know, I guess, I guess there, there will always be those who loved the fact that he could just generate webs and the others that wanted the web shooters. I was personally happy with the web shooters also because it gives more urgency to the story because it gives you the idea that they are not limitless and that at some point the guy can actually run out of, of webs and then it's like, what the heck's he going to do? So, well, and not only that, but they can be damaged. How many times in the comic books did somebody stomp on his wrist, damage his web shooter, and then he had to come up with a different way to subdue him? I mean, and it happened in the movie. 
Exactly. So it was a, it was a, a great plot point as well in the movie itself because yeah, when the, uh, right after the, the famous dad talk with the vulture, Peter rushes out and he's um, he's he's waved by by uh, one of I believe the the second shocker. He loses his, yeah. his web shooter. He's like, oh no, now what do I do? And it gives that sense of urgency of what's he going to do without his web shooters. And I also appreciate the fact that he can't just shoot webs into the air and it magically attaches to something. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cause that, that used to be one of the things is I believe it was in the animated show, the early one from the sixties and the late sixties up until the 1970 was the guy was randomly shooting webs in the air and Lord knows he was always able to find something for his web to cling on. And, and I think they kind of addressed that when he was shooting webs and there was nothing to attach. It was like, oh, man, you know, and I, and I thought that was that was that was good. So fun. playing on that, a lot of people don't remember the series from the, the actual physical series that was on TV on CBS in the 1970s. And I cannot remember the guy that played Peter, but he was way tall, did not fit the bill for Peter Parker, but it was an older Peter anyway, but um, Stan Lee, they tried a live action just like they did with the Hulk. We tried a live action Spider-Man on TV and he would mysteriously shoot his web up and just zip up and nobody ever knew what was going on. And so it was kind of weird. It was very campy. If you ever get a chance to see it, I recommend you go watch it just because you'll laugh. It's fun, but it's still Spider-Man. You know, <laughs> I, w I stayed up late as a little kid to try to see this, you know, like it's Spider-Man. And my mom was like, it's stupid. And I was like, it's Spider-Man. <laughs> so if, if you get a chance, look it up. It's absolutely, yeah, it's, it's hilarious to watch. It's definitely very campy and it's definitely very 70s. I'm sure that there, there, there are probably some episodes available on YouTube or such these days because seeing also, you know, the, the times when, when it was made. And speaking actually of other incarnations of Spider-Man, you touched up on that particular series. Of course, you know, um, I, I, I wasn't even around at the time, but I, I actually got to see some reruns later on as a kid of the ABC version of Spider-Man, which ran from 1967 to 1970, where we were introduced right to the famous theme song by Paul Francis Webster. Um, when it came to you and the animated versions, um, which ones were, did, did you watch or did you enjoy? Because we had that one, we had Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and we also had Spider-Man which went out on Fox Kids. Did you have a particular version of the animated that you liked? So just, I'll date myself here. I was born in 1974. So um, they were still playing the 60s to the 70s version when I was a kid on Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. And we got that famous Spider-Man, Spider you know, that, that theme song. Um, I grew up with Spider-Man and Friends. So I grew up with Spider-Man and Firestar and Iceman. Yeah. Um, they were on when I was a kid. Now, the Fox version of that, I was a little too old at that point to really pay that much attention. Now, my kids watched it. Um, I didn't have that much, you know, I don't know. I just didn't have that much interest in it. I still read the comics and stuff. But the animated series, I never really... Some of them were good, some of them weren't. So I just kind of, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll deal with it, whatever. Um, and then I think this latest, not the latest, but um, Neil Patrick Harris was voicing Spider-Man there for a while. Hmm. Um, I kind of got into that one, The Amazing Spider-Man. Right. Um, but this newer version I kind of fell off on. I just didn't care for it too much. But there's a lot of them that have came and went since I've been a little kid. 
and keeping up with every one of them now seems to be a task. It's almost like trying to keep up. I, I collect the amazing Spider-Man, the spectacular Spider-Man, because that's what I grew up with. A lot of people collect all the other different Spider-Mans, and I'm pretty much kind of the, the true purist. I'm, I'm going to go the Peter, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, and the amazing Spider-Man. Those are my books. So, you know, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, outside of that, you, I've delved outside of that a few times, um, especially since they introduced the noir Spider-Man and, you know, um, Peter Parker has been around since I was a little kid, so I'm very familiar with him. Um, <laughs> so the different Spider-Man that have been out there, yes, I know, yeah, I've been around them, but I think my favorite um, really has to be, you know, the original 60 to 70, <coughs> you know, 60 into 70s anime, because it was about Spider-Man. It wasn't Spider-Man and Friends. It wasn't all this other stuff. It was just Spider-Man, so... Well, I, I definitely can't blame you on that. There is, yeah, there, there are there were, of course, subsequent other animated versions. Among these, of course, was also the Ultimate Spider-Man, where we got Miles Morales. Because you were mentioning, of course, other other versions of Spider-Man. That was, of course, uh, an Ultimate Universe where Spider-Man, uh, the mantle is taken up by Miles Morales. And uh, interesting fact: Donald Glover who is in this movie, actually voices Miles Morales in Ultimate Spider-Man. And so, so yep. which, which I was, was a fun thing, not to mention his character is actually, who's Aaron Davis the Prowler, is actually Miles Morales' uncle. So who knows? Right. We might eventually get Miles Morales. Well, I'm hoping so, because I'm, I'm a fan of Miles Morales as, as Spider-Man. I also enjoy, and I don't know if a lot of people do, but I enjoyed, because it came out when I was, I think I was 18 or 19 years old when they started Spider-Man 2099. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy that whole concept of a futuristic Spider-Man and that kind of thing. Um, and... I like the way that they brought his powers to bear versus, you know, Peter's and it just, I'm glad they separated the two and I really just enjoyed that. And the fact that he is, um, of Hispanic descent, you know, makes it, you know, so we've had everybody pigeonholes and says, Peter is just this white kid. And so he's always, I said, no, you've got Miles Morales, you've got Spider-Man 2099, who's Hispanic, you know, <laughs> you have the different universes and people don't, I mean, Spider-Man's been a pig for goodness sakes. So Peter Porker. I mean, check it out. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, I will agree. Check, definitely check out Peter Porker. That was brilliant. I just, you know, I, I feel like that, you know, Spider-Man's always been an all-inclusive book. I don't think it's ever, I, I don't think of all the time that Spider-Man's run and it ran, it start, Spider-Man started in a very tumultuous time in our country. So, um, when it started, obviously it didn't start when Superman did or Batman or some of the others, but there was a lot of things when it came to race, when it came to um, uh, religion and different things like that. There were a lot of things going on in this country when Spider-Man came out. And I think that Marvel and the character of Spider-Man and Peter himself and everything that surrounds him have always handled that really well. Oh, yes. Marvel has often been more, more forward-thinking than DC in certain respects when it came to introducing, shall we say, multicultural characters. This is true. DC would then, of course, uh, follow suit as well, but I will agree, Marvel was maybe the more forward-thinking of the two at 
the time. And at the, so at this point, Kelly, I guess it comes down to ratings. On a scale of one to ten, what would you give this movie? So I would give this movie an eight, and here's why. Hmm. Okay. One, there's always room for improvement. I never give anything a ten. So that, that's that's why we're that's why we're where we're at. But the second thing is is that I still feel like there should have been some attachment. And there was a little bit, but I feel like there should have been more of an attachment, a little bit, uh, just even if it was a brief mention of Uncle Ben and that situation, and maybe on Tony's part of that, not on Peter's, not Peter recollecting it, but Tony in a conversation between him and Aunt May, maybe that could have came up, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that could have drove Tony to do what he did with Peter. I feel like just that one little piece, because I think that his Uncle Ben has been such an integral part of his life throughout the comic books, and to this day still is, that to leave him completely out of that mix kind of, I don't know, it sours the milk a little, I guess, for me. But again, I've been reading these comics since I was a little kid. Change is hard for everybody, so, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm still going with the eight. <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably give, I'm gonna be in pretty much the same as you. I'm also gonna give it an eight out of ten. I'm gonna dock points for the fact that I would have liked to have seen J. Jonah Jameson, to be honest, or at least an introduction to J. Jonah Jameson, at least in this movie. It was a shame because. He is a familiar face in the Spider-Verse, and it would have been nice to see him. And also, possibly for the, the fact of the, shall we say, inverted commas, kind of throwaway relationship between Peter and, and um, Adrian Toomes' daughter. You know, I thought that right. the Liz Allen-Peter Parker relationship was could have been developed a little bit more. So it's still a, a solid movie and a great movie, but... I, I, that's that's the reason for my 8 out of 10. Now, when it comes to you, Kelly, outside of your great love of comics and knowledge of superheroes and such, um, tell, a little, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and where they can find you and your great work. Oh, well, so um, I do a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do a, I do a show called The Veterans Forum, and you can find me on Facebook at The Veterans Forum. Um, we do that. Sh- I do that show on Saturdays from 11 to one mountain time. And, um, I'm still doing it on Facebook and you're welcome to join in the conversation and talk to us. We talk about all kinds of issues there. And um, I also, um, head up and lead a band called something like yesterday and we write our own music and we have our own albums out you can find us on reverb nation. You can also find us on, um, Amazon and iTunes and different things. We have one song out there that you can find all over the place. Um, it's called dry your eyes. Love is there. That song even to this day benefits all the survivors from, uh, Las the Las Vegas shooting at the concert. So, um, every time somebody buys that song, we don't see any of it. It goes directly to that fund. So that's the way we have that set up. So if you get a chance, go check that out. And then, uh, just check out my band, something like yesterday and, 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 uh, enjoy the music. <laughs> well, I will certainly endorse that. My people, be sure to check out something like yesterday and Kelly Pippin's great stuff, uh, both on his own show and, of course, musically, is definitely worth your time. And, of course, if you want to be like Kelly and join us here on the show to discuss a movie of your choice, feel free to shoot us an email at happinessindarknesshow at gmail.com. Or if you want to just leave us a comment, you can also do that at happinessindarknesshow at gmail.com. Feel free to show your support by giving us a like and follow on SoundCloud. That's 
soundcloud.com slash whiskey and cigarettes. And if you would like to support the podcast and are feeling generous, you can also hit the donate button. We really appreciate that. Any donators will be able to pick the movie we next discuss with our, with our co-host. And speaking of which, next week, we will be joined by fellow podcaster Holly McMiller to discuss the Russo Brothers Royal Rumble that is Captain America Civil War from 2016. That said, Kelly, I want to thank you once again so much for the time. I truly appreciated it. I definitely look forward to having you back on the show soon. Well, thank you very much, and I enjoyed being here, and I will come back on and discuss superheroes with you anytime you like. Oh, we definitely appreciate that, and you definitely have an open invitation for it. Well, my people, that was our discussion of Spider-Man Homecoming. Be sure to check out that movie if you have yet to do so. I know we spoiled the heck out of it, but you're still going to enjoy watching it. We'll see you next week. Ciao for now.